it's all well and good to discover these needs for people to feel that they matter, that they've been listened to, but then something needs to happen to meet those needs or to change, right? So I think it's very important. Now, it's not necessarily the leader who needs to do that. Welcome back. Welcome back to another episode of Everyday Leadership. And today I've got Netta Beltran with me. She is a non-violent communication consultant, facilitator, and coach. She supports leaders, generally speaking, on how to communicate empathically. And she has a background in neuroscience and physics. She's also a recovering introvert, which we're going to delve into a little bit more. We talk about some of the toxic environments she's worked in, some humiliating experiences that she's had, and how that's helped her to shape who she is and how she shows up as a coach, as a facilitator, as someone who helps leaders ensure they don't provide or create environments that she went through. We talk about the different kinds of violence, the differences in sympathy and empathy. We talk about being an introverted leader and how that's not a bad thing, despite what the world might tell you. But actually, there are so many great qualities of being an introvert that can help you be one of the standout leaders in your organization. Talk about celebrating your wins rather than focusing on the things that go wrong and how that can get us a negative cycle. Talk about letting go of your ego. Now that does not serve you. Even though in the heat of the moment, it might feel like it does. But long term, it's a losing battle. And she is a, what I'm going to call a recovering introvert. <laughs> As well. So I have Natsip Beltrade. How are you doing? I'm really well. Really pleased to be here. In fact, I'm going to leap into, I will start with the origin story because I'm always curious to see how people start to work in the fields that they do right now and where that actually came from. So for me, what was your origin story? Yeah, there's so many aspects to it, but it's funny that you mentioned I was an introvert by nature I am. And that really meant that I had very many bad conversations. I was always uncomfortable. And yet I had this drive to be a leader. So I was in a real, I had a real tension. And eventually I realized that the better I communicated, the better I could do my work, especially as a leader. So I started realizing the importance of knowing yourself, knowing other people, and just being the most compassionate and empathic you could be. And that's really what creates connection between people. I've done many different things in my past. Would you like to hear about some of those? Yeah, I want to, I want, I'm curious about yeah. that. Yeah. So as you said, I started as a physicist, didn't actually practice. And I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to change the world in different ways. I ended up doing education and healthy children be raised in different ways. You and I were talking about this. I really believe that if we change the way human beings grow up, we'll end up with a different society and a better one. So I ended up being board of directors with a lot of violence. And already I had discovered nonviolent communication, also Montessori, which is a very person-based approach to dealing with people. And so I had some tools. And even so, I found myself in a really violent general meeting with like 60 people. And I ended up being 
humiliated in, in public for doing some work that they didn't like the outcome of. But that was very much my role as a leader. And I ended up very traumatized by that experience. I never thought people that I liked, that I thought they liked me, could actually speak lies about me. It felt like like being stoned, you know, like having a hailstorm fall on me. And I just froze. And other people around me froze. That was a real tough experience that marked me. I ended up leaving the country and then moving to England. And soon enough, in a few years, I found myself in a very similar situation. But by then, I had, you can imagine, I had practiced those skills of learning to understand my emotions, understand other people, hear any message, no matter how difficult or violent, and turn it around so that I didn't lose my footing. And lo and behold, it happened. I had this guy again attack me in front of 70 people. And I thought, oh no, here we go again. But this time it was more like a gentle rain. Surely uncomfortable, but I could just in the moment turn around those violent messages, hold my ground and hold a group, you know, because I was the leader in that space. I had something to get done and that we had shared decision making to make. And it was really quite a shocking thing for me to see that someone coming from such a shy background could actually do that. I thought, wow, if I can do it, anybody can do this, you know? And it really marked a lot of people that moment because in my experience, people freeze, you know, when it's a toxic environment, when there's aggression, most of us freeze. We protect, right? Some people fight, but the crowd usually freezes. They don't go protect you or defend you. So it's up to you to really have those skills, you know, to be able to stand strong. And I'm five one, so it was quite a striking thing that I could do that. To no credit of mine in some way, you can imagine. It's really about having the skills of self-awareness and resilience. I mean, you've mentioned twice in there around violence. I think a lot of times people equate violence with physical violence. And I really wanted to lean into that around, well, when you talk about violence, like what are different forms of violence that can show up? Yeah, I think there's different kinds and I'm not very bogged down de with definitions. I think I always ask people, what does it mean to you? To me, violence equates to harm, you know, especially if there's been intentionality, but sometimes there isn't and there's harm anyway, you know, and it really depends on the words we use, on the tone of voice we use, on how we relate. Human beings are very sensitive to the social context. And actually, the brain circuits that have to do with understanding pain and evaluating whether it's noxious or not, they don't differentiate if it's social or physical, funny enough, or emotional pain is really very painful in a physical way. It's that pain that we feel inside of us when we are met with violence, aggression, whatever it is, that causes us to go into that flight mode, that freeze mode, shall I say, another flight, where we're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to react. And you kind of force you to kind of sit back. And I think what you're talking about is being able to actually have the tools that allow you not to freeze up, but to react in a way that doesn't necessarily match up to what that person is doing, 
but re- react in a way that allows you to be able to communicate and do something about that situation or de-escalate that situation, especially when you're a leader, which is very, very important. Absolutely. In the moment, in quick progression from what's happened, you don't have a lot of time. And I think leaders can train themselves to respond more consciously with more choice, more quickly, with practice. And as you say, to regulate themselves if they've gone into dysregulation, whether it's freezing, which is common, or fighting. You know, they could be really angry. How do you control that emotion and still make the right choice? You know? Between the first time that happened to you and then you left and then the second time that happened to you, what were the big changes that you had to make or the growth that you had to go through that allowed you to to handle that second experience a lot differently? You know, funny enough, it might be a bit counterintuitive, but I had to become more and more aware of what I felt in the moment. Often we don't want to feel those uncomfortable emotions, but they're just information. They're just like the signal in your dashboard. You would never cover it up, right? You would listen to the message. So in a way, once I learned to really know what my body was feeling, what the emotion was, to name it, to become acquainted to it, and also to have a kinder inner talk. I think we're very harsh on ourselves, especially when we're in leadership roles. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves. And if we can learn to be compassionate with ourselves and to look at ourselves with kindness, it really gives you resilience of a sort that is almost um, invincible. You're not invincible. No matter what comes your way, you can stand strong. You don't ever hear words like resilience and self-talk and self-love in the same sentence. It always seemed like they're two <laughs> opposite things, especially in work, where I guess you can even greet them and say, you know what, those are soft skills. Those are I things know. that you don't, as a leader, why would you want to talk about that? You need to be hard, you need to be tough, you need to be able to command and lead. But yet you're saying, actually, no, for you to be a leader, you need to kind of embrace all these different tools and recognize that they're actually one. They're not separate things. They're not opposing things at all. No, not at all. I think they are all interconnected. And, you know, imagine you're very aware of your body, both how it feels inside, the position you adopt. That's information for people. You know, there's been studies that show that we actually attune to each other in a way that we adopt each other's feelings, but also we synchronize our heart rhythms, how our lungs are breathing. It's very physiological. So I think the more aware we are of what we are putting into the world, the more responsible we can be with what we're creating around us. It is not disconnected. Does that make sense? And but then that leads from a, I mean, you have to be very intentional and thoughtful about what you're putting into the world as opposed to just reacting in the moment in time, isn't it? Completely. And that's the work to become less reactive and more responsive. You know that quote by Frankel? He actually said he'd never said that, but 
between stimulus and response, there's a space, right? Let's lengthen that space and become more conscious of that response. Otherwise, we're guided by subconscious urges and past patterns and goodness knows what's in there. So what is your definition of, I know you don't like titles, what your, your definition of nonviolent communication in VC? It's a system, it's a practice that helps us touch our more compassionate nature and have that more accessible. So it's a way of being with ourselves and with others that is empathic and compassionate. Communication flows from that. It's not just about communication. It's about really knowing yourself, knowing others, knowing what motivates us, those human needs that we all share, those human emotions that we all share that tells us whether our needs are being met or not, and to use that to help us become the best version of ourselves, really, and to communicate with compassion, to relate with kindness and also awareness. Kindness, compassion, empathy, are they tools that can be taught or tools that can be revealed in someone? Yeah. I think there's a core human ability to be empathic, to be compassionate, and we show it very early on. I think if you see little children, they tend to favor kindness, and of course they're learning all sorts of things, so they could be aggressive. But it can definitely be practiced, which in fact is what I help people do. They come to me, they want to be more empathetic. So I show them, this is what you do when you listen to someone. This is what you avoid. This is how people uh, understand that they're being listened to or that they're being accepted. And this detracts from that. So yes, with practice, they can be learned. Is there a difference you found between sympathy and empathy? Totally, yeah. Sympathy is almost like identifying yourself with the other person and their pain. And empathy is simply seeing them, knowing what it's like to be in their shoes, looking at the world from their point of view, understanding what they're going through, and almost resonating with them, which, as I was saying before, it's a very human ability. It's a matter of honing it and making it more accessible to you. Is that harder? Have you found it has been harder to do, especially the last two years when everyone's been virtual? So rather than being in person, there are certain, I don't know, body traits that you don't necessarily pick up, a certain things you don't necessarily see, because all you see is someone's face if you're looking right at the camera. So has that been, have you found that's been harder to do or hasn't really made much of a difference over the last couple of years? You know, I think it's easier if we see each other's faces, but there's so much more information than the faces. You know, there's the tone of voice, there's the body, what the whole body. You know, sense information. There's the words, obviously. So you can pick up a lot. I don't think it relies only on on seeing the face. And in fact, people who are not sighted can be equally empathic. They just pick up the other cues. So what do you say to leaders who are like, I don't have time to listen to people's voices and their tonalities. I have got business to run. I've got people I need to look after. I, I need to move so quickly. Like, if they say something to me, I take their face value. If they're not being honest with me, that's up to them. That's their fault. Which is the common. I hear a lot of times from leaders. I'm sure you do your work as well. I do. 
But, you know, I'm lucky because I get them when they realize that there's no way around it. They have to make time because it's coming in the way of business, right? Or, or of their own well-being. So it doesn't take a lot of time. That's the key. Once you learn, it's there all the time. You're doing it automatically. It's just teaching yourself to have that habit of doing it. You talked about your work you did with uh, Montessori, which if my memory says right and I could be wrong. A lot of that starts with children. Because I remember Montessori practice from when my kids were, were quite young. But it actually flows into adulthood as well and actually can be some of the base stages you can't live your life. And then thinking about Marshall Rosenberg as well, who came up at NVC, he did some work with kids as well, wasn't it? Was that where you made that link between NVC and, and children, the work he did previously? Or was that afterwards? Yeah. Interestingly, Marshall Rosenberg's children went to Montessori schools. I'm always wondering if he got some ideas from Montessori herself. Because I came to Montessori first through my children as well. And I homeschooled them for a few years. And I realized the beauty of basing your education on the needs of the person, in this case, children, is the same with leadership, though. If you can lead from the need, is what I call it, just identify the needs in everybody present or involved, and then from there, find the solution. Everything gets simpler and easier. So then after Montessori, I came across Marshall Rosenberg's work. And it just blended so beautifully because they're universal human principles of how human beings work and are motivated. What are some of those um, key principles, components of nonviolent communication that you can actually share with us? There's universal human needs that we all have, and they're all the same throughout life. And they motivate our behavior. So every action is motivated by trying to meet a need. For example, you are hungry, right? Because you need nourishment. So the need is nourishment. And the feeling is telling you to go meet that need. Yeah? When your needs are met, your feelings are pleasant. So once you eat, you'll feel satisfied. So that's one really big principle. And no matter how tragic somebody's actions are, they're still trying to meet a need. So you can always connect at the level of needs. And once you identify and make clear what the need is, often people realize there's better ways to meet them that are less costly to everybody if their behavior wasn't great. So it's a really beautiful way to motivate people to become the best versions of themselves. Empathy is another really big principle. To listen in a way that really gets people heard and known and valued. And the, uh, back to what you were saying, it doesn't take a lot of time. One minute of this and people feel so seen and like they matter. And then they go do their work in a very different way than if they feel that they don't matter. I call it a superpower, being able to listen empathically. I'm curious, I talk a lot around active listening and the importance of that. Is there a difference between active listening and empathetic listening? I think active listening is one type of empathetic listening. Yeah, and I like thinking of empathetic listening as the kind of umbrella term that encompasses the different kinds of listening, of doing it, right? 
Marshall Rosenberg studied with Carl Rogers, who was very big on active listening. So a part of what we propose in NBC for listening is active listening. So last week, in fact, I was having a conversation with a leader. We're talking about listening and how important it is and how it's great to listen to your team, your staff, your organization. But then they listened, but they didn't necessarily take action. And that now led to a lot of issues coming up with the trust that was at probably at 40% was now at 10% because people were even more frustrated around the fact that, okay, you've, did, you've taken the time to listen to me, but you've done nothing about it. So with I'm curious with your work, what would you say to leaders around listening and that follow through and how important it is? Because it's all good to be able to see someone and let them know they've been hurt. But how you, are you doing something about it is also very, very important, isn't it? Yeah, it's very important. That's actually the fourth step in the NVC framework. We call it requests or actually you could call it strategies, but the action step where the needs are going to be met or not met. So as you say, it's all well and good to discover these needs for people to feel that they matter, that they've been listened to, but then something needs to happen to meet those needs or to change, right? So I think it's very important. Now, it's not necessarily the leader who needs to do that. Maybe the leader needs to give that task to someone else. I guess as long as something comes out of it, that's the main thing. And therefore, it hasn't just been a waste. Because even being able to share how you're feeling with someone else, there is an emotional and mental side to that, that you're giving yourself to someone else. And then when you do that and you empty all of that and then nothing comes of it, it, it hurts you in a really, really deep and internal way, isn't it? It's a very vulnerable space. And I think it's crucial that leaders learn to translate that information into action, which ideally is co-created action. You know, it's you can agree with that person if it's appropriate for the next action, right? Or once you listen, you can say, okay, what would you like done about this? So you can bring it to the action level. Yeah. And that's a real skill to have. Very important. How do leaders cultivate all these skills? With a lot of patience <laughs> and a really good coach. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, to me, that's my work. So it's easy, right? I have a whole system where people, I just handhold them through the whole process, right? First through self-awareness. I invite them to do mindfulness type exercises. You can do that in many ways, but that's where the time goes, right? If you do five minutes daily, just check in with yourself, get to know your body, get to know your emotions, your thoughts, and slowly you can help them have skills to regulate them we practice how to have conversations, how to listen empathically. You know, there's steps you can follow to any of these skills. How do you know you need help? Because that's also another key area, isn't it? You can wait till everything yeah. blows up and obviously they definitely yeah. need help. Or there are, always, there, there are times when you have signs in front of you, you have red flags in front of you that yeah. you can identify. So how would I know that, you know what, I need to come and work with a coach and do some real work about this because this is going to become a problem for me? I think the feedback that you get from people is really essential. 
Now, if you don't have the self-awareness and the social skills yet, you may not be able to read it too well. But usually people that come to me have heard some version of they don't stand up for themselves or they are too harsh with people, maybe a bit prickly. You know, people want them to be gentler or they feel themselves that they're not standing up to their values or they're not leading in line with their values. Any of these things can be really good signs. Or people are not doing the thing you're asking them to do over and over and over. It's hard to motivate people, for example. Or there's lots of conflicts around you or in the team. Are there people you choose not to work with? Not yet. I'm focusing more and more on leaders who have a purpose of changing the world in some way usually environmental, social type visions. But no, I work with people who come my way for now. I was going to say, the reason I asked you that question was because there are times when a client comes to you and you have a conversation with them and you recognize that this person is not in the right space or they're not ready to do the work. And therefore it's like, well, if you're not ready to do the work, there's no point on us actually going on this journey. So are there things that you see that lets you know that this person is in the right space for me to work with or this person is just doing this because they need to tick a box? Before I take them into my courses or my coaching programs, I interview them and we make an agreement. It's just part of how I think leadership should work. So I try and model that where we go through their vision, their goals, their obstacles, and then we decide how motivated are you what would happen if you didn't make this change? I let them know that change is not going to be easy. It's going to require work. And are they going to commit to doing this work? And if they say yes, we enter into a partnership where I try and support them and they commit to doing the work. I like that. It's a collaborative effort, isn't it? It's not one way. And it's not on, you can give them the tools, but they have to be willing to take those tools on board and do something with them to actually get the, trans- the change and transformation that they seek. And sometimes they decide, or we together decide that it's not the moment for them. And that's okay. But you know, I remember having some students or clients in the past. That, and I thought, oh my goodness, they're not in the space. They're never going to get there, right? But I, I brought myself back to thinking, they want this change. And I'm going to trust them. And I'm going to believe in them. I'm going to do the best to support them. And this surprised me. And they've been some of my best uh, successes sometimes. Yeah. So in those situations, they've challenged you to be like, there's something I can do in this situation. I just need to think slightly differently. Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of walking the talk, mm-hmm. right? It's never easy. <laughs> so. No, 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 exactly. We all need to do it. Yeah. Yeah. At the start, I mentioned that you are a recovering introvert, but it's a really important point because there's a it's a myth around, especially in leadership circles, that says that introvert people are not great leaders. And even despite the different proofs and studies that's been done, I think there was one that showed like there was like a three hundred thousand people were interviewed, three hundred thousand leaders were interviewed, and it showed that this is a myth. Yet people still believe it. So I really want to speak into that for a bit around. How can you as an introverted leader learn how to be able to 
lead authentically and show up in your fullness in the best possible way for your people and yourself? Yeah. I think you can become more and more familiar with your strengths and really own that, you know, cultivate what Rick Hansen, who's a psychologist, a psychiatrist, he calls it the garden of your mind. It's a lot about mindset, right? And I think introverts just have this innate tendency to criticize themselves so that before they're even speaking in one word, they already feel bad. They already feel hesitant, right? So if you cultivate the garden of your mind and you know what you're good at and you also know what is difficult for you and you have compassion for yourself, that extra layer of criticism that you're fighting with all the time just subdues, you know, so you're removing some internal blocks that seem to be there for some reason stronger than for other people, maybe the lack of confidence. So over time, you can train yourself to acknowledge and celebrate your successes. And I think it grows into a stronger muscle, you know, of confidence over time. Do you find it easy to celebrate your wins and your successes? I do now. I'm interested about that. I'm really, really curious around what was it like previously and what was it, what was it like now? And how does that make you feel as a person who's gone through that journey? Yeah, I was tortured kind of person. You know, this inner chatter was so negative, so insecure inside. You know, part of that is experience as you gather experience in life and then work, you become more confident. But part of that was really intentional work to change the way I talk to myself. In the same way that I practice talking to others differently, it also went inward. So I make a mistake, say, or what I consider a mistake. I used to just batter myself about it. Now it's more like, oh, okay, so I feel disappointed that this happened. And you can mourn the loss or the pain or whatever has happened. And then you can bring yourself back to feeling compassionate for yourself. So that's very accessible to me now. And if it's something positive, you can just celebrate and feel really good about the good that has come of whatever you've done or the success you've had. So there's a humility that comes with it. It's not, you don't become more arrogant, quite the opposite. I think you become very balanced. If you celebrate and mourn based on needs, that's also Marshall Rosenberg's proposal. Based on needs. So your needs that have been met or other people's needs. For example, say I got a really great job. I made a lot of money or whatever is important to you. You served your clients really well. You had a project that was successful. You can celebrate. Okay. So these were the benefits and those are the needs that were met, you know, in yours and your clients and your team. People collaborated really well. We met the deadline, which was hard in the past, you know, so you can recognize yourself. Thinking around the brain and neuroscience, which is one of the fields that you, you operate in, and thinking about this conversation we're just having right now, was it the pain and pleasure operate in the same space in our brain? So does that mean that this 
choice we have to be able to celebrate our wins rather than fixate on the negative things that have gone wrong all linked back into that pain and pleasure being a choice that we have that we can actually make with time and effort and patience and work on it. You know, I tell my clients that our brain has certain biases. One of them is the negativity bias. So we'll always hear the negative more strongly. It's just a given, but we can choose after that, we can choose what to do next. So as you say, we can choose to celebrate. And that gives you, as you say, maybe more of a rewarding feeling, more pleasure. And you know, there's been studies showing that it's not just that we look for pleasure all the time when we're talking about motivating people as well. People also want pain. You know, it's more about the process. Yeah, it's not so much about the reward. It's about the pleasure that we draw from the process. And some difficulty in that process is necessary. It actually bonds teams together. You know, if they're doing something and there's some difficulty or some suffering, they've proven now that they gel better, they collaborate better. Interesting, isn't it? It is. And it makes sense because we all know that we grow through pain. But our natural tendencies is to run away and, and avoid pain. Like even when you're talking earlier on around some of your growth that you've had, for me, it was you, you sharing how you sat in the discomfort and that allows you to really be able to gain some clarity and then move forward. But a lot of people avoid sitting in that discomfort. So how can you get to that space where you're like, you know what, I'm here. I'm not going to run away from this. I'm going to sit in it. I'm going to go through that pain because I know on the other side of it is growth, which sounds great when you're on the outside of it, but when you're in it, it's a lot. Like I said, that emotional toil on you can yeah. take so much. I think you go slowly, step by step. You know, you can't face your biggest challenge all at once, but you can train yourself with the small discomfort to just inch that little bit closer and that little bit closer. And over time, again, it's like a muscle. You train yourself to withstand more and more discomfort or even to live with a need that is not met. Because maybe your team is really doing a poor job and they will be for a while until they learn, right, how to do it better. So there's no choice, right? You can fight that every day or you can actually enhance that they work better. There's also been some studies showing that people get motivated from positive emotion which is so counter to what we do, right? You go to the doctor, they tell you, oh, you've got this disease and this and this and this is going to happen. You feel horrible. And somehow that's supposed to motivate you to act differently. It doesn't work. What works is to help people see the benefits of the change and to give them a felt perception of that they can't do it, that their strengths are this or that or the other thing. So from that positive emotionality, then they're, they make the step to change. They're willing to withstand that discomfort, you see. Is this something that you have to have gone through for yourself before you can help other people go through? I think so. I personally think so. It's not theoretical. In a way, I think 
that's why it's so important that leaders look at self-transformation is because they need to be the models. People are scanning them all the time. And I think that's part of the problem. They don't realize how crucial they are. You know, people are really watching them and responding. You know, they have a lot of influence and they can use it more wisely. I think if you think about a leader that has really inspired you, motivated you, helped you change, what did they do? And how did they make you feel? I think we, we all have a good examples of that. Right. And it's usually along the lines of they were compassionate. They saw me. They believed in me. They trusted me. They knew my potential. Any of those. So they made you feel good, capable, worthy, like you mattered. And that's why, um, my, the podcast logo has got the polarity of leading self and leading others. Because exactly what you're talking about right now of you as a leader, you're supposed to model certain behaviors. And the more you can lean into that authenticity of who you are, it actually influences those around you because they start to look to you and they see what you're doing. And when you're talking to them, they can be like, actually, he's backing up his talk with his actions. And therefore, I want to be like that person. So that's why it's important, like you said, for them to, to do that self-work and then flow into other people. And I know, as you say, the leaders that I've most admired and that I've shaped myself after, they've been that. They've been wonderful, gentle, compassionate, strong and visionary, but they treated people nicely and they were confident in their own skin. They knew how to treat themselves well. As you say, they were leading inside and outside. There's a side of me that then goes, this sounds great. But reality, maybe it has been changing, but reality is you see a lot of organizations and people who are in leadership positions who are, I'm going to call them old school, very similar experience that you had before you moved, where it's about shouting, aggressiveness, swearing, all that kind of stuff. That's the way the organization is run. And you have people who might think, actually, this is not my leadership style, but if I want to get ahead, I need to emulate and be like those people. So how does someone begin to navigate that, that imbalance between what's going on inside of you and what's real for you, but what you're seeing modeled in front of you and ahead of you. And you're thinking, but I want to navigate. I want to rise up. So I want to be like him, but I really don't want to be like him. And it's not an easy balance. No. and, And we need to learn to play the game that is already there and to live in that game while also changing the game around us, I think. So I think a leader can change a lot within their immediate circle. And sometimes that is enough to create wider ripples of change. But as you say, they also need to play by the rules that are currently there. They're not going to dismantle the whole system and then lead in their own way. And it takes a lot of juggling, I think. But in my experience... There comes a point when there's no choice because the lack of integrity inside people is such a tension and it makes them sick. You know, sometimes I get leaders who really are not very well from this tension that you mentioned, toxic environments, they call them, and they're not thriving. People are not thriving. But if you learn to speak compassionately and to listen empathically 
it really dissolves a lot of barriers because people are people, even those higher ups that function in that way that is not ideal. They're also people. So empathy is really a good way to reach them and to change things, I think. And that really actually resonates around you get to the point where that toxicity is just too much and you need to kind of make that choice of, am I going to keep on trying to stay in this environment or am I going to step out of it and do something different? I guess you're a good example of that way. You made a choice and you decided to leave and it's led you on a different path, one that's been a lot better for you. But how important is that sometimes even those internal feelings inside of us are indicators that our body are trying to let us know that you need to let go of this. You need to step out of this environment. Or be different within that environment. And some people can do it. I really admire that as well. You know, the comment I get the most when I'm not actually in a teaching role or in a coaching role, people go, what do you just do? Like something is different. I don't know what, but I want to learn what you just did, right? They, they can perceive that uh, you speak to people differently because it dissolves aggression and tension. It's a new way to look at conflict as transformation, for example. So you're much less afraid to enter into a conflict. So you're actually much more effective. Imagine that in a leader, that they're not afraid of conflict, but they're also not aggressive in any way. So they can build connection as they go. People love that. Because everybody, you know, business is full of people, right? We forget this. It's the main component, isn't it? It is people. So would you say gentleness is a skill, is a superpower that people can utilize? Yeah. I think being empathic is. And it comes out differently in each person. You know, when I have a training or a coaching program, I say to my clients, you speak the way you do, you just practice on the side and eventually it becomes part of you. So you're being empathic. It's going to look differently than my version of it. But so long as it's authentic, it's really all about connecting with the person you have in front of you, you know, and, and doing what serves them, what makes them feel listened to. And that's what the superpower is because it makes people feel so good. And they love you. Most of us have a huge deficit of that. How does the work that you do in the journey that you've gone on inform your parenting? One thing I love about NVC, beside all the things I've shared already, is the use of power, the conscious use of power, which I think is parallel between leaders and parents. Because parents are leaders, right? Really, hugely, I think. They're agents of social change, I think. So if you're conscious of how you're using power, because you do have power, right? But you can use it with benevolence. You can use it to serve, not to impose. You know, you can use it again to meet more needs and you can enter into a partnership with that little person, right? where you're not imposing, you're coming up with shared solutions that work for everybody, then there's very little limits that need setting or boundaries that need imposing. They learn to direct themselves from the inside out. They develop self-discipline. Montessori talked about this a lot. 
And it's a beautiful thing to see very young children in charge of themselves. And it isn't by imposition that you achieve it. It's by respect, by giving them a voice, by showing them the consequences of their actions on other people. How do you combine that with and that idea, which sounds great and, to be fair, should be the model, <laughs> but how do you combine that and mix it with then cultural norms that also happen? Because that seems to be sometimes when the friction comes into play, isn't it? you might know what you want to do, but then you've got culture that says, actually, no, this is how you lead, this is how you parent, this is how you enforce your will on other people. And you call, you have that constant clash happening because there's a lot of stuff you've learned as a human being and as an adult that has come from your parents that's been passed down onto you. So you have to do that on learning and then teaching something new to the children is never quite easy to get it quite. You don't get it right, do you? Especially no. as a parent, you, you never get it right. No, no, never. <laughs> that's why they have the concept of the good enough parent. <laughs> and I think leaders should realize that they need to be the good enough leader. It's the same. If you start really early on, when children are very young, like when they're born, they want to know how things are done in their society. In the first six years, they want to adapt to the society they have. The pull to connect and to belong is very strong. So there's not very much tension. They want to know where the limits are. And those are social, right? Social norms that they've been agreed on. Now, you can say, this is how we do things. And usually they adopt it. Eventually, it clashes with their autonomy. And then you can talk about it and you can decide what to do. And sometimes it will be that you impose a limit, but hopefully the fewest number of times and with the fewest force. There's often an alternative if you know the need, right? I remember, do you want an example? Of course. Oh, I'll give you a child <laughs> example. I remember I have three children. And my third one was 18 months, two years, something like that. So we get to a place and I say, okay, you can get down of the car right now. So I would unbuckle the seatbelt and he'd go, no. I'm thinking, oh no, I need to go. I'm going to be late. And the day I recognized what his needs were, everything changed. I realized he wanted autonomy. He wanted to choose whether he got off or not and when. And I said to him, okay, it's time to get off. Can you do it quickly whenever you want to, but quickly because otherwise I'll be late. And it's really important to me that I'm on time. It wasn't two seconds. He was down. And I thought all these weeks fighting with him about it. Come on, get down. And of course I didn't want to force him, but it all went away. As soon as I recognized his need, my need, and found some common strategy that could meet both. Very willing to cooperate if they feel seen, if they feel that they matter. So then the need to impose a limit went away. And with most things, we can do that. Not with safety, usually. That's quick and important and you do it. But even with that, you can work towards partnership. Patience with yourself and patience with your children sounds like it's a critical yeah. component of yeah. this through to get it and understand it and then apply it. And like you said, you're not always going to get it right, but it's recognizing that and then moving towards that direction that you're trying to operate in. And you know, as I'm hearing you, I'm thinking of the power of repair. It's 
especially as a parent, but also as a leader, when you haven't done something that you're proud of, or when you've created some hurt or disconnection, go back and repair that relationship and do it when it's little. It's beautiful. People love that, especially children. Because human beings, we're so social. We just want to feel connected, right, and close. How can you activate the power of repair when your ego's at play, either as a parent or when as a leader? It's like, I'm, I'm in charge. I can't. <laughs> I can't go back and say sorry. I can't do it like that. So how do you begin to learn how to actually activate such a very, very important thing? I would become very curious about that part that is preventing you from doing that. And just sensing yourself, feeling yourself, and what's the need? Again, what are you trying to achieve by not saying sorry? What's that thing about authority? What does it give you? Is it safety or power? If you have this power, what does it give you? And there's usually some version of feeling that you matter or safety some very core need and once you recognize that it probably just relaxes and you will feel more humble and more human we put all these layers to protect ourselves and they dissolve once you get to the core of what's important to you so back to that sitting in it and understanding where these feelings are coming from so you can actually understand okay what's going on for you and watching the beliefs and the mindsets and seeing when they're getting in the way, but not, again, not punishing ourselves for having them, but to listen deeper about what's really important to you about that. This has been such a, an awesome conversation that I've thoroughly enjoyed. And uh, yeah. I guess the last question I was asked is, how do you define leadership? Yeah, I was thinking about that. To me, it's the ability to create change with the resources that are available. It really is about change. It's about motivating other people to come along to that change. That's how it lives in me. Thank you very much for coming on Thank today. All the resources, Nessa's website, everything she gets involved with will be all in the show notes. So you can definitely check out her work. Leaders can definitely look into her because she's speaking to you right now in today's episode. If you're dealing with issues in your organizations, issues with yourself, actually, and you need someone to be able to help you walk through some of those different things, definitely look into Natty because as you heard today, she knows what she's talking about and she can definitely help you navigate. Yeah, I have a little gift for your listeners about empathic listening. It's just three steps. And it involves learning how not to take messages personally, which can really help to listen more openly. If you're going to put that out there as well. Brilliant. See, you already got gifts as well. You had this great conversation and the gift afterwards. Where else do you work? (laughs) No, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And this is Everyday Leadership. I will see you next week. 